Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 78 Kids Love Comics at the 2017 Baltimore Comic Con. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around, it's the first of two episodes covering the 2017 Baltimore Comic Con. Just like last year, this first episode is going to feature the Kids Love Comics features of the convention, because... Once again, I took my son Brett along with me to the comic convention. So we're going to have a, a little fun today with talking to Jamar Nicholas, who is the creator of the graphic novel Leon, Protector of the, of the Playground. And you're going to hear, hear us as we sit in on a panel with Kazukibushi. Apologize for butchering that name. Brett pronounces it much better than I do. Who is the creator of the best-selling graphic novel series, Amulet. And you'll hear it all right after this. come in all shapes and sizes coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it's digest cast a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s hosted by the fire and water podcast team of robin shag and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests it's digest cast because big things come in small packages coming soon to the fire and water podcast network So, like I said, much like last year, uh, I took Brett with me to the Baltimore Comic Con, and we both had some comics with us to sign. We both had shopping lists of things to to get. And when we sat down in the line before uh, the con opened at ten o'clock, we went through the program and we saw who was going to be there and what what we were going to what we were going to be doing. We did. He did patiently stand in line with me for a lot of uh, different creator signings, which I'm actually going to get to in my next episode, which will cover uh, creator signings and some of my personal experiences with the con, and and, uh, and and I'll have a guest along for for that with me. But um, Brett and I did walk around the aisles of the Kids Love Comics uh, alley, and one of the tables we stopped at was for Jamar Nicholas, who is the creator of the graphic novel Leon Protector of the Playground. And he had his own uh, panel at one point at the show, but uh, we had a chance to uh, stand and talk with him for a little bit as he signed Brett's copy of the graphic novel and uh, talked about it. So here is Jamar Nicholas. Thank you so much. Hey, how are you, buddy? Good. And um, can I personalize this or just sign it? Um, Can you personalize it? Like, can I make it out to you? 
Yeah. What's your name? Brett. Brett with two T's or one T? Two. B R E T T. Yes. See, I'm good. All right, Brett. What, what what grade are you in? Fifth grade. Uh, I think you might relate to this. Thank you. Um, so, what is the book about? Okay, uh, Leon Protector of the Playground is a story of a sixth grade superhero. Uh, in this universe, everybody has, well not everybody, superpowers are prevalent. And his mother just happens to be one of the most respected, powerful superheroes in the world. But he doesn't have powers. Uh, so, he is a uh, try to really work with common sense as a superpower. Uh, and he goes to school in a uniform uh, and helps protect kids from bullies and things like that. Since everybody in this universe kind of knows who his mother is, he doesn't have an, al an alter ego. It's just Leon. He doesn't have like another code name or anything. Uh, so I get to introduce a lot of quirky kid villains. Uh, one of my favorite villains is Broccoli Rob who was a, a spoiled kid who got cursed by a broccoli wizard and now is just spoiled rotten and uh, everybody doesn't like him. Uh, and there's a league of homeschooled kids who don't like Leon for a couple of other reasons. Uh, really what it starts to uh, look into is the dynamics, the social dynamics with sixth graders. Uh, around sixth grade, kids start to develop personalities. You know, probably before that, they weren't really concerned about how they look or how they dress, but now it's super important all of a sudden. And um, I wanted to touch on some of those things. So he has conflicts with other kids. A lot of kids like him, and a couple of them don't, and you'll kind of read that in the book. Uh, it has a really good heart and a, a great tone and there's some messages in there if you choose this season. So uh, this is the debut of it this weekend and I'm really uh, happy with where it's going. Cool. All Thank right. We're well, looking forward to it. Thank you Thank so much. You very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice meeting you. You, you as well. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Did you get a Did you get a sticker? Oh. Did I match my sticker? Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right. Keep protecting the Yeah. We also had the chance to go to a panel. This is the first panel that Brett actually has ever been to, and it's one of the I've, I've been to a few here and there over the course of my five years or so covering the con. But uh, this was interesting. This is a uh, Kibushi, who is the creator, uh, writer, and artist of the graphic novel series Amulet, which is up to seven books at the moment and has been a huge bestseller. Uh, both nationwide and worldwide for Scholastic. Uh, he sat down with his audience for about an hour and talked about his career in comics, his inspiration, where he draws inspiration from, and uh, everything about creating the Amulet series. So, uh, with minimal edits and and some and and minimal interruption and no interruption, uh, here is that panel that we attended at the Baltimore Comic Con.
And this, this is one, um, an anthology you might be familiar with. If you're familiar with the amulet, you might have seen these on the shelf as well. And not too long ago, Scholastic um, asked me to do the covers for the Harry Potter 15th anniversary edition paperback. So if you've seen these images, the, uh, the, these paintings were uh, done by me on this computer right here. They're all digital, uh, single layer uh, files. And uh, I did that on purpose to make it feel more like a painting and less like a digital illustration. Oh, hey, look. It's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of. Um, I, I wasn't sure what was in the slideshow, <laughs> so I'm kind of going through it with you guys. Uh, this is this is that was, a, that was just kind of a skater surfer kid, uh, a B student. Uh, nothing special. <laughs> I I drew cartoons a lot. Um, as you can see, like this, my my room. My mom took a photo of me sitting in that corner, um, on that drawing table that I never drew anything at. Actually, that was the worst table ever. It was really uncomfortable. I didn't like it, but I didn't want to make my mom feel bad. So <laughs> so I kept it in there, but I would often just draw at the dining room table. It was a lot more comfortable for me. Um, that was, it was really wobbly. If, it, if you put that on a carpet, you just like rock back and forth, and you just felt like you, you had no uh, control over the drawing. Alright, so that's me posing with my mom. So I did cartoons for the high school paper. Um, here's another one that's uh, done for the Literary Journal. Um, and uh, around this time, people thought that maybe I would pursue art as a career, and I told them, no, I'm going to go to college for something else. I like to draw already. I don't want to necessarily get too much. I wasn't trying to get better or trying to get a job doing it, so I wanted to see if I could um, uh, learn to do something else and bring it into the arts. Uh, and I decided that I would study film. So I went to uh, oh, and around that time, I was also falling in love with literature. And I didn't like the superhero comics all that much. Uh, I, well, I would read the superhero comics, and I loved the art. Uh, I was a real big fan of a lot of the art that was, you know, even the comics in the 90s. Um, but I, I just didn't like the stories. <laughs> and so, uh, because I was reading The Old Man in the Sea and Cannery Row, these are my favorite books, and I wanted to, I would, I would have, at the time, I wanted to make comics um, that that were like literature, and I, I didn't see that much of that around, so I just didn't think that was like a path that I could take. So going into movies, I thought that was that path. I thought, you know, films or cinema, like great cinema that I, like films I was watching in a lot of the uh, the local like independent theaters, I, I, I saw some films that felt like literature, so I wanted to make something like that. So I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I worked uh, right in the middle of that beautiful campus at the Daily Nexus, the newspaper. And this is how I paid for my lunches and my meals while I was at UC Santa Barbara. I got paid between $5 and $50 on a drawing. These would be like $15 to $25 drawings. Um, it doesn't sound like much now as a student. It was great because I could pay for food. I could pay for a little bit of something. Um, and uh, I would go up to five of these in the night. And so, or maybe even more than that. Sometimes I think I've, I've done up to upwards to nine in, in one evening. Um, one of the things that I, I didn't feel I was very good at um, when I was younger was I wasn't good at finishing my drawings. I was very slow. Any of you like to draw? Yeah? Okay. Do you have a hard time finishing your drawings? Yeah. Yeah, I, I did too. Um, like my, oh, she's like, no, I have no problem with it. 
Oh, okay, nice. But you're fine with finishing it, that's great. I never knew when my drawings were done. Um, and the newspaper um, gave me a, a place where I, I had to be finished with the drawing at the end of the night, because there would be people waiting for me. I'd be the last one working on the newspaper, <laughs> and uh, we would have to take the, all the flats for the newspaper and take it to the printer, because it was a daily newspaper, um, and it had, it had to be on the stands the next morning. So I would draw something one evening, and then the next morning there were thousands, of, you know, like tens of thousands of copies of, of my drawing out there on the campus, like every day. And it was a really great experience, uh, especially especially going into class. I'm all sleepy. I usually sit in the very back, so I don't get any any. Uh, I don't. I'm not called on for any questions or anything like that by the professor. <laughs> and I would look around in the room, and I would see people draw, like looking at the drawings that I did. They would go right to the cartoons that I would do. Uh, and that was a really fun experience, and they didn't know who I was, so I was just, just kind of looking around, and wow, this is, this is neat, people are reading my, my, my cartoons. So I did a ton of these, and I uh, accidentally became a professional cartoonist. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how to color anything either, so I was just starting to learn how to use uh, values uh, with like a color, these are, this was done with gray color pencils, so we had gray color pencils, and, and uh, Scanners were essentially invented at this time <laughs> in the late 90s. Well, we had scanners, but now we could afford scanners at the uh, uh, at the newspaper. We had our we were using the very first IMAX, and they looked like giant jelly beans. Um, and that's that's what we made these uh, newspapers on. And so we were able to scan grayscale images like this and like this. And I would uh, put these. This was like a cover for an Arts Week section in the newspaper. This was the cover for a film journal. Um, this is the front and back cover. Uh, I often showed this image because I ended up having to do the whole thing twice. And it was really painful at the time, but I learned a really valuable lesson. Um, and it was that when I did, so I, I drew it once and I started inking it. I was about to be finished and I knocked over a bottle of ink and just spilled ink all over it. And um, I, I nearly screamed because it was, I was, I hated working on it too. <laughs> so I knew I'd have to go back and draw this drawing I didn't want to draw at all. And so it was due like the next day, so I just, well, I mean, I had to finish it. I didn't have anything. So I went back and started redrawing it. And I found that it was actually enjoyable uh, that second time. Uh, it wasn't enjoyable the first time. The second time I knew what I was doing. So I was just making the drawing better. And the process of improving the drawing is fun. The process of discovering that drawing isn't always fun. And so that was really, it was really key in my understanding of like how the process of art works for me. So when I make a book like Amulet, I end up drawing it close to 10 times or more. About eight to 10 times, I'd say. I draw the whole, like every page has been drawn, yeah, at least eight to 10 times. Um, and um, I, I like to tell people, I don't know how to make something good, but I have pretty good taste, so I know it when I see it. When I read it, I'll know that it's something that should stay in the book. So I give myself um, eight to 10 chances uh, to fail. And um, I mean, I think I took that from sports, actually, because I, I play baseball, I play basketball. You know, if you're a Hall of Fame, if you're, if you're gonna go into the Hall of Fame as a baseball player, you're, I mean, if you're batting about three, over 300, you're probably a candidate uh, for one of the greatest you know, hitters of all time, and uh, that means you're failing 70% of the time. 
you know, and that's just because people have this level of expectation of, you know, you know that you're going to fail 70% of the time, and if you succeed 30% of the time, you're an incredible success. Um, if people know that prior to, to becoming a hitter, then they wouldn't quit if they failed 50% of the time. <laughs> and as an artist, a lot of times you are going to fail. You just have to know that you can't be an all-star hitter right out of the gate. Uh, and so I tell a lot of young artists, um, you're, if you're starting, it's going to look terrible to you, no matter what. Like it would be, you either you you were either very fortunate and very lucky to to hit upon a drawing that worked really well, um, or you're some crazy genius that we <laughs> we need you to draw all these comics if all of a sudden everything you do is great. But I was one of those people that just um, I went into it with the idea of process. I was comfortable with process, uh, and so I just. I was never the best artist around. Uh, my friends were, and they would win the awards. I would not. I'm just the guy who stuck around for a long time, and eventually people looked at me and they thought I was like the best guy around. But um, really, it's just being resilient and stubborn. <laughs> um, I don't like quitting, uh, so I just kept doing it. Right. So here's some uh, here's a cartoon I did for the newspaper, Cloudy Cabbage. Would walk through a bunch of movies that uh, that I enjoyed. Uh, That's my friend Corey, who was an illustrator for the paper, helping me on my animated film. Um, so I went to school for film studies. I knew that um, I would have a hard time finding a job with my degree because my degree is essentially one where uh, I told somebody that I watched movies. That's a movie watching degree. <laughs> That's what I got a degree in, <laughs> not something technical. Um, it's it's essentially a, a degree for film criticism, for to be a film critic and write for a newspaper. Um, so knowing that, I knew that I should probably gather a portfolio to uh, to get a job, and I thought that portfolio could be an animated film. And I began working on it my junior year of college. Uh, and those are storyboards for that film on my wall. And I spent almost two years working on this thing, and it was like not even close to being done. Uh, I came home one night from my job at the newspaper, and I saw that someone had broken into my apartment and stolen my stolen my computer and my animated film with it. And so I ended up losing about two years of work. Um, and I decided I, there was no way I could finish this, so I just I just left it aside and I, I decided not to finish it. Let me see if there's some some of the animation in here. Let's see this guy. So this is me, like hand-drawn animation. I was coloring in Photoshop. This is in the 90s. So <laughs> uh, I was using Premiere, and what I did was I would scan an image and turn each scan into a two to three to four to five frame video file. And I would connect them in Premiere and just like uh, uh, string them together as like thousands of video files into one video file, and then display that. That was how I did it. Um, so this is a sequence that, um, where he's, this guy, Schemer, is running away from this giant security robot that is trying to smush him. Uh, he's trying to rob a bank of their golden lug nuts, and uh, it doesn't work out very well for him. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so I was, I, this, is, this wasn't a loss, a total loss, because I learned how to draw better. I had to draw you know, thousands of frames. Um, and I got better at drawing the same thing multiple times, and it's something that. Uh, and if you come to my booth um, later, uh, you'll, you'll you'll see me draw my characters on the books. I draw for everybody. I draw on almost 
and uh, I kind of do that to uh, to practice the characters in Amulet. It's a place for me to continue to draw fast and draw them faster and faster. Uh, that way, when I'm working on my book, I don't have to think about it at all. It just—it's like a free throw that I just—you know—I just shoot the free throw. It's very easy, and then I move on to the story when I'm working on my book. It's a way for me. There's that practice gives me more time on my writing and uh, designing uh, new characters and things like that. So, what inspired Amulets? I uh, read Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. I forgot the second thug in there. Um, which is a graphic novel by Hayao Miyazaki. He's a filmmaker. You guys familiar with Miyazaki's work? This, uh, he did uh, Spirit Away, um, My Neighbor Totoro, Ponyo, uh, Parkoroso, Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, a lot of my favorite movies were uh, directed by this man. He also did a comic book uh, in his free time, which I, I, I can't, I still, don't, I still don't understand. He had a time turner or something. I found three times in a and uh, And he was able to do this book. And I read it uh, over the course of, I think, two afternoons. And I was in tears because I was, I was really floored by uh, how incredible the experience of reading it was. And, uh, and I'm somebody who loves literature. And, and this felt like literature in comics form. And I wanted to do something like it. And thankfully, there was somebody else out there who was thinking exactly the same thing. And then I, I recognized that immediately that Jeff Smith was thinking about it this way, that he wanted to make a Lord of the Rings, Walt Kelly, Hobo style, <laughs> uh, with bone. And uh, when I talked to Jeff, he, he said exactly that. He said that that's exactly what he's looking to do. And, uh, and he looked at Nausicaa, and he said he saw the same thing that I saw. So I decided to join this group, and I wanted to make <laughs> my book, and this is my first try at Amulet. So this is what Amulet looked like in college. Um, actually, I think I, I first started working on Amulet in high school, so it looked worse than this. Now, the drawings are good. I mean, it could be its own comic and stuff, but it looks like it's like an old, tiny version of Amulet, right? Uh, that's Trellis there, to the right. And that's Leon. He was a cat named Leod. And uh, Riley there, I think, turns into Miskit. Um, Although Miskit, there was a doll. I didn't call him Miskit at the time, but there's a doll there uh, that they uh, that they carried around um, that would come to life, but uh, wasn't as as large as Miskit is in the end. And I drew about 30 pages of this, and then I stopped, uh, mostly because it was the the hardest project I've ever tried to do. It was really hard to make a graphic novel. I didn't realize how hard it would be, and I, I realized I can't do this for a living because. This feels terrible to do. <laughs> I thought, this is not fun at all. I'm going to hate my life if I have to make graphic novels. So I stopped, and I went into the workforce, and I worked in graphic design, uh, and eventually found my way to architecture, things like that. During that time, though, I was still drawing sketches of Amulet. So this is what that kind of stuff looked like. And I would put them in drawers and just leave them to the side. I worked at an architecture firm downtown LA, uh, top of the building in the very back, that silver building way back there. Um, and my job was to, to uh, take um, the architect's plans and photos that they took and put it all together and try to sell these giant buildings. And it was a really fun job. I loved it. And it was a dream job. You get paid well. You work with really wonderful people. Uh, I was the youngest person there, but they didn't treat me like that. They treated me with a lot of respect. And I loved it. And I realized.
realized that it was a dream job, but it was not where I should be. <laughs> and I'm just glad that I had this experience because later on I would have to make really difficult decisions where I would have to choose between the opportunity and doing the, what I felt was the right thing. And after I walked away from this job, it was hard. I, I, I felt like I had ruined my career by quitting right when they were, when things were getting pretty good at this, at this job. And I left to focus on storytelling. Um, and ever since then, it was easier to make um, difficult decisions, such as when I was asked to direct the Bone movie, um, I had to, it, it was one of, that was a very difficult decision to have to say no to that, because I was, I was uh, already uh, into, I was already working off Amulet 2. Amulet hadn't sold many copies at all, it sold 200-something copies when it came out. <laughs> and since then, it sold over a million. So, you know, sometimes things just take time, but you will have to have the, you know, the uh, perspective to stick with something for a long, like, over the course of a long period of time. Now, a lot of you are fans of Amulet. Uh, how, how, how old are you guys? If you're nine? Right, so when I signed up to do Amulet with Scholastic, it was in 2005. So I don't know what time, what year were you guys born? <laughs> yeah, you weren't even here. <laughs> so I was like, already, and when I was working on Amulet 1, I was thinking, well, by the time I'm done with this, the people who are really going to take this and like really champion this book are not, aren't here yet. <laughs> they haven't been born. Like, it won't be years until they're here. <laughs> and to have to write for that group was really, I mean, that was hard. Like, it was really hard to get myself in this mindset that I'm not writing for today, I'm writing for tomorrow. Um, and, but, but when I do that, I felt like I was in a calmer place as a creator because I wasn't doing things based on what the market needed. Like, if, if I followed whatever everyone was doing in the moment, then everything you would just bungle your way through, and you'd probably freak out because you know you would you you would have to be constantly trying to stay aware of what's happening and try to figure out what's going on. Um, somebody as somebody who's uh, been a surfer <laughs> for a long time, you 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 don't you realize that um, you don't begin surfing in the middle of the wave. You know you're you're. Most of surfing is knowing when those waves are going to hit and where, and being able to paddle into the right spot. <laughs> and sometimes it, you're cold and it's just terrible and miserable, and it takes hours until you get that wave. But then once you do, it's totally worth it. You know, um, I, I was I was glad to have that experience because I was able to apply that to, to to the work that I did. So with Ambulance, uh, there's a long-term thing. So when I hear people like, "Oh, you got to get the next book out, next book out," I usually try to tune that out <laughs> because. Um, this, this process of making these books takes a lot of time. I have to sit down and really, uh, really consider, um, you know, what I'm doing at every step, and um, and that's why the books take a long time. Even though I can draw lightning fast, I can show you guys the table. <laughs> I can draw, I draw fast so that I can, again, spend more time thinking about the book and doing the writing part of the process, uh, and not create a whole lot of extra material that you guys don't need. There's only so much space on your bookshelves. I don't want to, I don't want people to have to buy too many books. <laughs> Alright, so um, after the architecture firm I worked in animation as creative director. Um, I had some friends who were students at Art Center that were these, um, they were, 
there were these phenoms. They were um, getting uh, a whole lot of attention for the work that they did in school. They had built their own computers, set up their own little company. They didn't have a storyteller, so they asked me to join. And so I became their writer, director, guy. And so we would work on commercials. This was something that actually played on TV during the NBA Finals when the, Lake, when the Lakers were competitive. And uh, <laughs> I'm a Lakers fan. I'm still, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It, you have these years, you know, you have struggle. Uh, but um, I did this commercial. Did this for uh, Microsoft video game that they never made. Um, and uh, I built the set and everything like that. This is like in 2001, I believe. So this is like, it's pretty impressive because the computers we had were less powerful than your cell phones. <laughs> and we were building 3D animation like worlds with it. And uh, I was also developing a story based on my brother and me uh, as these hamsters. Uh, and I pitched it to a bunch of studios and it got picked up by Walt Disney Feature Animation. Now before I uh, went to Los Angeles, I actually submitted my portfolio to every animation studio in Hollywood while I was uh, still at school in Santa Barbara, and I got turned down on every single count. I didn't even get an offered an internship, and everybody said I had to learn to draw and go to school. So I, I, when I moved to LA, I, I kind of you know, intended to find my way through the industry because I thought, well, if they just met me, and they would see like how, you know, like how disciplined I was with my work, and that I could get the stuff, I'm a fast learner, that they would see how, how well I could do this. And sure enough, all of a sudden, I'm directing a movie at uh, age of 22 uh, for Walt Disney Feature Animation. And it was a weird time at the studio, too. I was part of a group that a lot of people called PixArt. Because uh, I was a, a, one of the new CG kids that were coming in, and they, uh, the, the people, the top brass, that were trying to replace PixArt, because PixArt was threatening to leave. And I got brought in, and so people gave me the sneak eye wherever I went. It was a really weird experience for me. Um, and so uh, we were developing this film. That whole, like the whole Disney studio was in, was in kind of chaos until they bought Pixar. And then Pixar kind of brought, came down and fixed the South studio, the regular studio. Uh, while I was doing this, it was really interesting. Watching, um, I got to see all the development work for the movies that they were doing. Uh, and they had uh, a project called American Dog that they were currently in development with and they were trying to make it that year. Uh, and eventually that movie became uh, Bolt. Uh, prior to that, it was called American Dog. They, they, they actually kicked the, the filmmaker off of that, that project. The director went to another studio called DreamWorks Animation and made a movie called How to Train Your Dragon. And this is the creator of uh, Lilo and Stitch, uh, Chris Sanders. He, he created American Dog, they changed it into the movie Bolt, which I think is great. Um, and then there was another movie called uh, Rapunzel that was in, per and was in development for over 10 years, I think, at that point. And uh, uh, they, they, they were changing the people who were working on that, and eventually, they eventually made it and they turned it into Tangled. Uh, and then the Snow Queen was something that was also in development. Uh, I saw the development you know, artwork on the walls there, and that was in development for, since, uh, since Disney was around. So Disney himself was actually working on the Snow Queen and they couldn't get to completion and they finally made it and you've seen it, it's called Frozen. So uh, so Frozen took like 50 years <laughs> to find the screen and I saw that and I was like, gosh, there's no way I'm gonna wait 50 years <laughs> to see this because I just need to see what audiences think. You know, I, I, felt like, um, I felt like I could not convince an executive of what I had in mind to do um, until they saw somebody watch what I did 
and then told the executive, hey, this is good, you should make, you should make more of that. Um, so when I saw that, I realized the writing was on the wall for me. Uh, so I actually gave up the rights to this film. I just signed everything away and I said, you guys can have it, everybody can have it. They're like, what? Like, yeah, I'm, sorry, yeah, I'm done, I'm out of here. If I can't work on it, then I won't work here. Because <laughs> they asked me not to work on it. So I left and the next project I wanted to do was Amulet. So I wanted to protect that one because I, I thought that that was something that audiences should, that once audiences see it, I think that they'll really like it. So I decided I'll go straight to the audience and that's why I'm back in comics. And so I pitched it to Scholastic with just these six pages. And I just basically told them, I'm going to do this whether or not you guys pick it up. <laughs> and they said, well, we want to pick it up. And they offered me a big deal, and I basically became the highest paid comic artist off of this project uh, at that time. So um, I was able to go from this little tiny studio while I was developing Daisy Cutter, which I did just for free. I just did it for, just to see if I can do a comic book. I did Daisy Cutter on the floor there because that was the entire house, uh, the entire apartment. Uh, there's no multiple rooms or anything like that. Um, there was no room for a desk, so I bought a plank at the, the hardware store, put it on my printer box, and I drew on the floor. Um, and then there's, there's not even a closet in that apartment at the top there. Those doors open up to reveal a Murphy bed that was in the wall. So you can pull the bed down, but it was so uncomfortable that I ended up just leaving. I just took it out of the wall and I eventually put uh, a desk in there uh, so that I could sit down and not hurt my back so much. Uh, but that's where I used to that's where I used to draw inside that closet. And then once Amulet was there, and then um, uh, studios came in and, and picked it up as a movie. I was able to hire an assistant, and um, and so. The Amulet movie's actually been in development longer than it's been in print. Um, it was picked up as a movie in 2007, and it came out in 2008. Um, and so it's been, um, it, you know, it's, it, but it's, it's been in development with different studios, and currently it's in the hands of, of um, the folks at Temple Hill Productions and 20th Century Fox. Um, and it's been, it's been really nice working with them. For a long time, it was at Warner Brothers. And I was working with the Will, Will Smith and his family because um, they wanted to make it for the kids, but then the kids are no longer kids. <laughs> so, the, so they moved on, uh, and then, um, then it went to, uh, to 20th Century Fox. Um, and so we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's been great so far. So here are uh, pictures of my home office and uh, my away from home office. I have a small office with, uh, that I work out with my assistant and my, my wife, who also does comics for Scholastic. Um, and it's situated right near my kid's school. <laughs> so my whole life revolves around uh, my, my two, two kids' school and, and their lives, basically. That's you know, just my, my wife and I are just going wherever they go. Okay, this is the production process. I will write a synopsis of the story, and I send this to my editor, Cassandra, and she gets to show it to everybody, and everyone, people, some people read it, some people don't. And it just gives us a bit of a map work for um, where the book is going to go in the story. Uh, I tend to not stick to this. There's sometimes sometimes I do stick to some of the story points, but for the most part, it's going to change. Uh, and I'm very lucky because I, I have an editor who understands that the, the, the nature of the process, the creative process, is that it's going to kind of change over the course of making the book. Uh, so she doesn't give me a hard time about sticking to my script. So I give, this to, I give that to her and I start a binder and I start filling the binder with pages 
And I used to draw my pencil pages at this size, and those are eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. So I used to draw the final pencil pages of Amulet at one quarter of a uh, copy, uh, Xerox copy piece of paper. You know, like I would do four on a page. Now I do two, which is, which is pretty big for me. <laughs> uh, the thing is, the reason I do that is that I really get into drawing nudity details of my stuff, so I have to work around my bad habits. And so if I don't give myself any space, then I won't do that. And as the years go on, my discipline is better, so I can draw, start drawing bigger. And now I'm at the point where I could probably just draw one-to-one, -one and I won't waste too much time. Um, so, you know, knowing your own bad habits is pretty good, because then you gotta work around them. And eventually, they turn into good habits, when, when you have enough uh, positive reinforcement for the good habits. Yeah. All right, so this is uh, what uh, anyone up the desks that I would work on look like. There's coffee, there's a pair of scissors, usually a, um, a scotch tape sitting around. A lot of times I cut and paste the panels out and just, like I'm in an editing room, in the film editing room, and I just uh, move panels around and things like that. I will often, this is mostly how I write now. I just write the dialogue, I draw the faces of the characters, sometimes a little bit of the setting, um, and I don't even tell you who's saying what, because if I can't read that and tell who's saying what, then I probably didn't write the scene very well. Uh, the dialogue should, every time I write dialogue, it should be reflective of, you should know, like you should know without even looking at it, who's saying it um, through the scene, because uh, otherwise, if you can't tell, then that means it's the author basically talking, <laughs> kind of questioning what, what they're doing. And that's the kind of stuff you don't like to read. Okay, so these are early sketches of Vigo and uh, Dagno. Dagno's name um, comes from my, my son's first word. I mean, he, he would say Dagno all the time. He was like two. <laughs> he was like, Dagno, Dagno. Okay, and turned that into a character. And I sort of based the dragon, the, the little wyvern character, on my two-year-old. Uh, he is now, uh, he's now going to turn eight very soon, and he's he's one of the editors on my book, basically. <laughs> he, he reads it, and he's like, Dad, what, Daddy, why do you do this? What what was that? <laughs> and he also gets the name characters now too. So a lot of times, I actually um, I pencil everything on the on paper, but sometimes when I just want to. I know I'm just going to want to draw something fun. Uh, a lot of times I'll just leave it kind of blank and then I'll go ahead and do some light penciling on a Cintiq, a digital tablet, screen tablet. Uh, like on the left here, that Navin's face there was drawn on the Cintiq uh, and General Phil as well. And then I uh, print that out on a bigger sheet of paper and then I ink it using a graphite pencil. And so I would. Um, I don't actually use uh, croquil anymore. I used to. I used to use brushes and croquils, which is like kind of your traditional way of uh, inking a comic book. Uh, the reason I don't do that anymore uh, or is twofold. One, I feel like pencil actually looks better when it's scanned. Um, it, it, it has a flowy line to it, so it looks like things are in motion. I personally prefer that. So that from an aesthetic perspective, that works. Number two, inking hurts my hand, <laughs> and so I can't ink as much as I can pencil. So if I have a super light blue printed page and I'm penciling over it, I can also erase my inks, which is great. So there's another, that's three, three things. You can actually make mistakes with pencil that you can't 
you can you can make those mistakes on ink, but then you have to wait for it to dry, then you have to put the process white on there. It's, you lose time. So I'm always trying to find ways to save myself time and save myself my health. <laughs> you know, find ways. And I also, by the way, I have a work curfew. I don't work past 10. I go to bed or play video games or something. Just anything. Just don't. I just don't work because then I, if I work past that, I generally find that when I come to work again the next morning, I'm burnt out, and so it ruins the next day. Yeah, so and then we color those the book in Photoshop. Um, we begin with flatting where um, like you basically just do the basic colors and then you add the details uh, as you go. And I, I, if I had a tablet, I would paint something for you. I'm sorry, I don't have that. So Amulet 1, I ended up redrawing the book completely four times. So the three times, the first three times I did it, the book was terrible each time. And I would just do the whole book straight through once, twice, three times I was crying. <laughs> I was just I was telling my wife, like, I don't know how to do this. It's very clear I've lost it. I don't know what is going on. And I realized that my brain just cannot handle doing an entire book all at once. Um, I, just, I just couldn't. Um, and then it was Jeff Smith that actually looked at the third version that was terrible, and he read it, and he was like, hey, man, um, <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> Which means it's bad. And, uh, and he said, some of it's pretty good. Some of it's pretty good. And he was right about that. So I don't know if you heard me talk about it downstairs, but that's, where my, that's how my process came about. I, I, I agreed with him that some of it was good. Most of it was bad. So I went and took a look and, and became a very good, a, a very you know, picky editor about uh, when I was looking over uh, my work. And I picked out all the stuff that I thought was pretty good. And I saw that there was a book there somewhere. And so I turned those parts into the book. The next book. So I basically had to fill in the blanks, basically, um, with the parts that did work. So what I do now is I basically go farming for material by making different versions of the book. Which I, so I basically draw amulet eight to ten times now in a rough form. Um, I do that again and again. Every scene I do, and this, I, I work from scene to scene. I don't work for, on the book as a whole. I only work on about sixteen-page sequence, one sixteen-page sequence at a time. Um, and then I put it all together like it's like a music album and a bunch of songs. Uh, but each time I do a 16-page sequence, I you know, spit out 16 pages, I'll do it in like 30 minutes of just thumbnailing, just like an hour, 30 minutes. And then I put, I put it down on paper, I read it, and then even if I'm excited to draw those pages, I stop and I say, tomorrow, read those tomorrow. And I just put them aside. And the next day I come back, I read them, and usually I'll look at it and go, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> And then I'll do it again. And then if I am really confident, I might go and pencil those pages at that point. But I usually wait at least one more time. And most times, I end up having to wait about five or six or seven or eight times. Um, and on Amulet 8, it's been yeah eight to 10 times. That's been it for each of the sequences until I finally found one version of the scene where I thought, there's something really good here. I should go ahead and pencil these. And so I sit down and I start penciling them. And uh, the penciling and inking process is actually pretty quick. Once I've committed to the pages, I can get the book done very quickly. Um, but getting there takes forever. Because I, I don't even know how long it takes. Sometimes it takes forever. Sometimes it's instant. All right, and so here are some more pages from this 
When I was a kid, I also wanted to design Disneyland rides. I wanted to be an Imagineer. So these books are sort of designed to feel like a Disneyland ride. Like one of my frames of reference is uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and just kind of the way that the ride is structured and how like the drop is at the beginning. I always thought that was interesting. You know, like things like that, I thought. Yeah. So um, I have action scenes that feel like the swooshy drops and things like that you have on a ride. And then there's scenes where the characters just talk um, that, are, that are just exposition. Um, this is where the ideas, you know, kind of show up on the table. Amulet 2, um, it's more world building. So if the first book is kind of like one ride at Disneyland, the second book is a little bit more like fantasy land or something, like a whole area. And Amulet 3, we continue to push it further. This is also the first book I decided I'm going to deliver it on time, and I did, and I reread it. Because I, I wish I had thought a little bit more about a few of the things, and I wish I took the time to fix the way that the characters' faces look, because every time I look at it, everyone looks a little wonky. <laughs> but I was so dedicated to being a professional that I decided to finish it on time, despite um, you know a lot of reservations that I had about the story. And I would never do that again, <laughs> delivering it on time. I try to deliver it on time as, as often as possible, but if the book requires that extra time, I'm just going to have to. It's going to have to. I have to stick with it because the book is probably going to be around for the rest of my life, <laughs> and I won't be able to change it. So I got to get it right. Number four, I ended up taking extra time, and you can tell when you read the book. Um, and and this is the first book I think Jason and Jason, my assistant, and I felt like where we really did this right. Like we did, we did, we did what we set out to do <laughs> with this book. And then uh, number five, I was able to experiment a little bit more with the storytelling in the in the way that time works on in you know in the, in the story threads, and I, I move the characters in and out of different time periods and things like that, kind of like in uh, Harry Potter and Prisoner of Azkaban or Back to the Future, um, and that was a lot of fun. And then six, uh, oh, this is some more than five. And then number six, uh, I decided to make this more just a straight up adventure. Uh, above the clouds and um, you know below the ground, it's kind of like a Jules Verne type of uh, book. This one, and in seven, it was a it was it was coming back to the character of Emily and her relationship with her dad. So that's why I put it front and center, and it's the first thing you see in the uh, in the book, um, and uh, it's the last thing you'll see in the book as well. And uh, very focused book. Meanwhile, uh, David's still on that uh, fun adventure, the robots, and he gets a job in a kitchen <laughs> on an airship. That's a lot of fun. Uh, so I, I show this to a lot of the schools that I go to. Um, my uh, my mom sent me a photo of a drawing I did when I was about eight or nine. The one on top, not the one on the bottom. The one on top, <laughs> one on top, and. Uh, I thought, oh gosh, I remember this. This is great. I remember back then I was really trying hard to draw this, these cars. You know, and, I, and I thought I was really good. Like I, I, th I thought I had done a good job. But And I looked at it, I was like, you know what? I did. That is actually a really good car. It just doesn't look very good because I didn't have the skills to 
to, uh, to show you what a good car that could be. And so I decided to um, just paint the, the car exactly as I had drawn it um, using Photoshop in just like a couple hours. Um, yeah, and so I did that, and, um, and that's what it looks like. So when you see somebody who's eight or nine years old drawing the picture up at the top, they actually mean to show you what you see at the bottom. <laughs> and that's what's in their mind. So you know, you kind of have to remember that. That's, so like, for, like when you're starting, when you're starting as an artist, it's frustrating because you can never achieve what you see in your brain, right? <laughs> it's so frustrating, of course, because it's, okay. it's gonna take you at least 10 years to get that. And then even then, even where I am right now, this is more than, much more than 10 years um, of doing it, um, I still can't get it. I, I can't achieve it. I try to get close. I've just kind of gotten to the point where I go, well, I'll just keep practicing. I'll just keep trying to get better. I know I'll never get it to where, the way I wanted to see it. But not everybody knows that. And people seem to enjoy it. So I'll just keep going. And I just, I just keep, keep putting stuff out there and uh, just be okay with failing a little bit so I can, you know, I can learn um, the process of, of making it better. All right, so any questions? Because I only got, I think we got less than 10 minutes now. Just a few minutes. Maybe uh, have any questions? Yeah. There won't be any new characters in the 8th Amulet? Will there be new characters in the 8th Amulet? Yes, there is a lot actually, which is, which is difficult for me to deal with. <laughs> I'm actually trying to trim down the characters. I'm not killing them or anything. Uh, but I, am, I am trying to trim down uh, the character list because it, it's, it, it's hard to keep track of everybody. But yes, there are new characters. Okay. Uh, yes? I was talking about like, personal flaws. I was wondering, like, do you ever have problems like when you're coming up with your stories, like you like the character too much, like this like character, and, and so you, the story requires them to go in one direction. Yeah, it's been. Um, I've, I've had that a number of times. Um, so in this scene, in this scene um, in Amulet Seven, um, I had I had the scene where there's an elf officer, like a villain that I had created, that I I loved his hair. He had his big poofy hair and it was hilarious and he was just a really good character to, to write. And he came in there and he basically took over the scene. He took it over from my characters, like the main characters. And it, were, it was a great scene, but it really did not push the narrative forward. Like it wasn't helpful at all. And it was a really, I had a really hard time getting rid of it. It's, that's the sequence I ended up working on for almost a month. And I decided to just get rid of that character and it and did wonders. To this, for the scene, and then put agency back into the hands of my main characters so that they were driving the narrative. And so that's mostly what I do. I figure out who my main characters are, who are we following at this moment, make sure that they have the ability to make a choice and to see the consequences of that choice, uh, rather than have it like thrown upon them, you know? Um, you know so, because that's just basically a storyteller doing that. You know? And so, um, when I saw that, I was really bummed, but I took this character out and I just set that scene aside. Now, when I got to the end of this book, there was a need for a character that would show up, and his name was Uncle Tex. And he is a, he's an elf that loves Earth, right, and humans. And he's so interested in their life and culture and stuff, but he's never seen it. 
So when he sees Emily and Naaman, he's so excited. <laughs> and so he's got the cowboy hat on. He wants to see the American West and everything. <laughs> but he's an elf. And he's like from very far away. And he's just asking him about like what it's like on Earth. And he became one of my favorite characters. He went from being a villain to one of the like, you know, one of the most beloved like side heroes. <laughs> and sometimes that happens, and I think that's uh, that's really cool. So uh, I, I, I know that the hard part of it is like I have to go into a scene knowing that sometimes I'm going to cut a whole bunch of stuff out, um, and, uh, and 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 then just, but I just have to start the process anyway. It's it's a pain, but um, it turns out all right in the end. Yep. So from what I saw on the end, there appears to be a, a wiki page dedicated to the amulet. Uh -huh. When they were talking about one of the villains, one of the like Prince Elf, uh -huh. they said how he's like similar to Prince Zuko from Avatar: The Last Airbender, the Nickelodeon show, of how like he like got started by his own father and like uh -huh. for a while was part of the army, but then got outcast and now becomes an ally oh, right, to right, the right. Um, heroes. So did you really deliberately like intend no. for that to happen, or was that just a coincidence that the trivia just pointed right, so, out? Yeah. So the TV shows like take a little less time to make because there's a lot of people involved. Um, I, I was making, I actually was making Amulet just as Airbender was starting too. So we kind of were right alongside each other <laughs> um, when we started. Um, the, the creators of the show are fans of Amulet and I'm a fan of theirs. Uh, and so we were just thinking on the same wavelength. But these stories, like the story of like that prince who comes from, you know, who's kind of stuck between two sides, that's a very common, you know, thing in, 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 in a lot of stories. So. I didn't think about that, but it is, it's, it's a lot, very similar to Zuko's story. Um, uh, I think Charles just has a different different type of personality, different situation, just a little bit, a little different. Um, the father-son drama in that one isn't so isn't as direct as the one in The Last Airbender, and that's probably because I don't know my real dad. Uh, whereas, like those guys, you know, I'm sure they do, <laughs> and so it's a very different dynamic. Yeah. So uh, no, I didn't, I didn't really think about the Last Airbender. My wife, though, did a story for Avatar Last Airbender, one of their comics. Um, over here, and then right behind you, and then here, and then here. And then that'll be it, I think. All right, thank you. Um, my daughter, um, the first novels she ever read were yours. Oh, wow. So, thank you. Yeah. Um, we're wondering when um, the next one will be out, and how many more might come after that. Yeah, so Amulet 9 is the last in this series. But I already have a contract with Scholastic to do my next series, which I've been working on since college. So it's been like it's something that's been developing for a long time. I'm already working on that as well. Um, this next book will be out at the beginning of this next school year, um, and so they, they kind of do it based on school schedules. Like so, they don't want the book to come out in the summer. It'll probably be ready by the time summer comes around. But everyone's busy playing outside, you know. <laughs> so it's better to release in the spring or the fall. Uh, and so it, it'll be in the fall because we won't have it ready for spring. But the book will be done, I think, um, probably the first week of January or last couple of weeks of December. Um, and then the ninth book will have to just schedule it on its own separately. I'm not sure when that will come out. But we're also developing a movie, so that's another thing. And I, I kind of want to give them time to get that movie together because it'd be really neat to have movies come out around while the books are still out. Instead of something it's like an after like an afterthought, it would be nice if they kind of kind of connected. It's, uh, okay, yeah, you. Is the movie gonna take place like between books or just one book? 
Yeah, the script for the first one was like the first book in that, and this half the second. That's what I, that's that's the way I, it looked like. And that's what it looked like. I didn't write the script. Um, a screenwriter came in and, and did a really good job. Actually, I've read a lot of screenplays. It was one of the best I've ever read, which was um, surprising. And I actually was very very pleased. It's very different than my version of the story, but. It was good, so <laughs> I'm fine with that. It's, it's good enough for me. Yeah. And then over here, yes. Um, what inspired the design for the airships? Uh, what inspired the design for the airships? Oh, just, uh, I just, uh, probably Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there was another couple of questions here, right? No? Nobody? Would you have a question? Uh, I did. Oh, you did? She had it. She took it. Oh, the same answer, same question. Okay. Anybody else? We're done. Or oh, you're just thinking. Okay. I use a Wacom Intuos. Um, the for actually for what I would have shown you here if I was painting, I use the basic basic tablet. It's like seven nine bucks you can get. But Wacom, you have, yeah, it's great. You can use, I, I use that for Harry Potter. So. Um, and uh, you know, and this and this laptop, um, I did Harry Potter on a single layer though too, so it was not um, not a huge file. I mean, it's a big file physically, but it's only single layer file, so you know, it's it's fine. Um, so, so you did your third version of the first book, and, and you thought a lot of it was bad. What was one of the bad things um, There were really subtle bad things. I think if I printed it, people would have thought, oh, that's pretty good. You know, uh, so it wasn't so. It was, it, it, there was there was one scene that I even painted, where um, Emily and Naven are crossing a bridge, and Naven starts crying, saying, "I'm scared." And I couldn't. Every time I had that scene, it felt like it broke the book. And I realized that's because Naven wouldn't cry. He'd be tough about it. And he wouldn't have gone through there. And I was pushing me as a as a, an author. I was pushing the idea of conflict, the drama between these two characters. I wanted there to be suspense, and that over was overriding who those characters were. And it was as if the characters told me we would never do this. <laughs> and so I took that whole scene out, and it was a really compelling scene. Very, you know, the writing was solid, but it just wasn't who the characters were. So I had to take it out, and that happens a lot. Okay, and there was uh, one more, and I think that's it. Uh, oh, now you remember your question? Okay, go ahead. Who is your favorite character? So my favorite character is Emily, because she's the main character. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you. Oh, uh, there's one more real quick. What's that? Uh, you mean like director, or it's Temple, it's Temple Hill and 20th Century Fox. It's like a bunch of the people who were doing, who they worked on the new Maze Runner movies and the Faulkner Stars and Twilight, and then they also did the War for the Planet of the Apes movies that came out recently. Um, yeah. uh, live action. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. And finally. I just wanted to uh, take a moment to let you guys uh, hear from from Brett himself. Uh, just like we did last year, we recorded in the car on the way uh, down I-95, uh, right out of Baltimore. Um, and as we did last year, we 
stopped off on the way home for Krispy Kreme donuts and Five Guys burgers uh, a little later than last year. Last year we left, I think, around 4 o'clock. This year Brett made it to about 5, and uh, we sat in some serious traffic on the Beltway, and then we, we rolled into the Krispy Kreme at Alexandria just to, just to get our donuts. We were going to eat them the next day. And... Um, we had we had fun with that because we got Reese's donuts and cake batter donuts and chocolate cake donuts and glazed donuts. So some serious donuts going on. But then we went to Five Guys and had had dinner and both of us were really really hungry and and he fell asleep in the car on the way uh, back to my in laws house in in Northern Virginia, which is kind of unusual because he's usually he it's been a a while since he's fallen asleep in the car on the way somewhere because he, he's ten now. Um, but he was he was pretty out of it so. Uh, I ran him pretty ragged that day, but uh, before he did all that, we, we sat down for a few minutes and we just talked about our experience at the convention and, and what he thought of it. Okay, so we are on our way home from the Baltimore Comic Con. We, it is 5.50, so we, we stayed a little longer than we did last year. So thank you for staying that extra like more a little around close to an hour so that I could uh, browse my favorite comic book booth. I mean I think I dropped the card of mine. I'll have to look for that later. So uh, let's talk about some of the stuff that Let's talk about some of the stuff that you bought first, and then and then we'll go to the big reveal, okay? Okay. So you bought a poster. Yes. What'd you get? Well, first I got a Legend of Zelda poster. That was really cool. Because, it, like, first it showed the link holding up his sword, and then it hold, and then it had, like, a bunch of the different variations of Link uh-huh. in front of him. else with you, um, you can't always, like, go through your list and buy, like, all the stuff that you think you need or search for it, because there's a lot of people around, so sometimes, like, you, you, you target certain things on your list that you know you need, and then you get those, and then you just, what I do is I go through the books, and I'm like, if it's really old... You know, like from when I was a kid, and I can't, and I don't have it already, or I don't have it online, so I pick a lot of DC stuff, because Marvel has an app you can read a lot of their comics, called Marvel Unlimited, and so a lot of their comics are available uh, on on my Kindle, and you can read them on your iPad, if you were interested. Yeah. Um, So I can show you that later. But... um, Yes, so that's what I bought. What were you looking through? What were you grabbing? I picked out some Spider-Man. I picked out a Thor Ragnarok. Um, I think, um, well, not 
Well, I picked out a few Spider-Mans. Some Superman. Um, but, <laughs> I think I was kind of like a vulture just looking at special, like at certain things. Yeah. We found a box full of dollar comics that were old Supermans from like back when yeah. I was a kid. That's where I got my Supermans. Yeah. So, that was pretty cool. Yeah, and it was pretty hard to find some stuff that was age appropriate. Yeah, that's, that's true. That it's best when you're looking for that to look at the cover. Okay. Why is that? Because like, on the cover, you can tell one by the name and two by like the drawing. Okay. Yeah, and if it's older, if it's an older comic, sometimes they are. They do tend to be a little more age appropriate. Because back in the 1970s or so, like right around when I was born, comics really were for like the kid, people who read comics. A lot of them were like your age, so. Superman comics from around then are fine. Superman comics now are pretty fine too. But yeah. Did you get? You now you got a bunch of trade paperbacks from. You got a couple from the Boom Studios or Kaboom table. Do you remember which ones you got? Um, I got an Adventure Time one and a Gumbo. All right, and you got. Um, you know you. Yeah, so you met him. Yeah. And we went to the panel, which we, which I recorded. So explain who he is and and what um, what what did you buy? Well, I bought some amulet books, and he is uh, well, he's the author and illustrator of the amulet series. Okay. And he also edited and contributed some of his comics to the Explorer uh -huh. series. Alright. Cool. Um, um, and you got what? Books four? Four, five, six, and seven. So, uh, there's a, something else you got, and you're holding it in, clicked in, right? It is the mix, it is the mystery box, and we got the Pokemon themed one. Yeah, now these, these things are, they are boxes with illustrations on them, and they're themed. So what other themed ones did you find? I saw the, um, friendship block. Uh-huh. It's like a block with the heart on it. Okay. There was a Harry Potter one, uh, one that looks like the question mark box from Mario. Okay, there I saw was, a Star Wars one. Yeah, there was Doctor Who. Okay. Phone booth, and they had a Game Boy uh -huh. and a Nintendo Entertainment System controller. Uh, okay, cool. Alright, so you don't know what's in your mystery box, that's why it's called mystery. a mystery box. But... You've got it right now, right? Yep. 
Alright, so you want to open it and you don't don't hold don't hold anything up by the way because I have to drive, alright? You just 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 tell us what tell me what is in your box. Okay. Alright, so what, were you, what did you find was the most interesting thing about 
panel that you went to? Probably the fact that he used to work for Disney. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. And he was part of, quote-unquote, Pig's Art. Pig's Art? Yes. Is this what he called it? Yeah. Yeah. Because, remember, that's when, like, Pixar was threatening to leave. Yeah. I might wear these socks when I get home. Um, what about the bat, the design, the redesign the bat cave thing we did? That was pretty fun. Yeah? What was fun about that? The fact that, like, we got to design our new bat cave. I did a lot of crossovers with video games. So, like, I drew a pipe where Mario could visit, and I drew the underground. And I drew three hearts with like X's out of them and little and Mario's hat on the ground. Oh. But then Bowser, Bowser's shell and his head and like he was like in, like knocked out. And uh -huh. I drew Goomba and a Koopa. And then I drew the fairy from Legend of Zelda saying, Hey, look, listen. And um, I drew Batman on a treadmill and said, The Bat Treadmill. Okay. And then, uh, um, there was a wood brick pizza oven. Um, and the Triforce was linked going towards it. Cool. And then the Master Sword stuck in a rock somewhere else. <laughs> you got a lot of pictures with people too. Yeah. Was that your favorite part? Or what one of them? Pictures? You seem to really like getting pictures with different people in different costumes. Yeah. Yeah. So next year you're starting to get you're starting to you're gonna be eleven next year. So not only you know you're you're starting to get to the point where you might be going in some of the older stuff. Um, you're also gonna be you're also gonna have uh, you're also too old to get in for free. Yes. It's your last year going in for free, so at least you did it. Uh, if we, if you go back next, if you decide to go back next year, what do you think you'll do differently, or what do you think you'll try to focus on finding? Comics. Okay. Um, get less prints. Okay. Um, get pictures. Lots and lots of pictures. I'm gonna cosplay as Finn. Okay. Um. Maybe look for different pop figures. So, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to focus more on getting comics, graphic novels, and trade paperbacks, and a little less on getting signatures next year. I think I've hit the point where I'd have to look. I have to. Maybe I should make a list of creators I haven't gotten signed signatures from who I'd be willing to stand in line at this point with it for at this point. You know? Yep. I so, like it. I like how they give you a little Pokemon Pokemon stress ball. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I was hoping we could find a Legend of Zelda box. Oh, they didn't have it. But the Pokemon one is cool. Yeah. I can't wait to wear these cozy socks. Alright, so, did you like the Baltimore Comic Con this year? Yes, I right. loved it. Alright, well thank you for coming with me. You're welcome, thank you for taking me. Alright.
And really, that'll do it uh, for this report. I wanted to keep my stuff to a minimum. I wanted to have him talk a little bit for himself and to hear you guys talk about, uh, hear you guys, let you guys hear about what we, uh, what we, a little bit of what we experienced, uh, the two of us. And next episode, you're going to hear a little more of my side. And I should be having a special guest, Gene Hendricks of the Two True Freaks the, uh, Network, The Hammer Strikes. Uh, etc. will be on the episode to talk to me about both of our convention experiences as he and I met up on Saturday and he stayed for Sunday. Uh, we ran into a couple of people including Tom Zoller uh, and Darren and Ruth Sutherland of Trucker Talk and uh, a number of other podcasts. And uh, I also had the chance to talk to a few creators, among them Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway, Michael Golden, uh, and Joe Staten. So you'll hear a lot of that in the next episode, which should be out in about a week or two. Until then, uh, please don't forget to go to the show notes. There'll be a picture gallery of, uh, of a bunch of stuff taken at the Baltimore Comic Con. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.